Again, good morning and welcome. Glad you're here this morning. Pray that God has already touched you through the time of worship and we look forward to, to sharing in his word together. Turn to the book of Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. If you're online, thanks for being here. Glad you're here and pray that God has already touched you as well in your home. And if you've got Bibles, um, pull them out. Turn to this passage in Ezekiel as we study God's word together. It's been interesting to hear the different responses from people, uh, you, who are reading through Ezekiel uh, with me. Uh, some, of, some of you are loving it. Some of you are confused. Some of you wish we would be done uh, with this book. But uh, we're going to keep pressing forward because the word of God is powerful, right? All of it. It's all given for a reason for our good, and I think this morning is a very important uh, truth that God is trying to show us as a people, and so this is an ageless truth, but I think in this age, it especially applies. In 1986, I was uh, finishing up my classwork for my doctorate in music theory. I have a those of you who don't know, it's not a big deal. Listen, $2 will get you a Big Mac at uh, McDonald's. But I have a doctorate in music theory. Uh, it's like a PhD. Uh, and so I was doing my exams um, for, my, for my doctoral work. Um, they involved uh, eight hours of written exams and a two-hour oral exam. So when you get to this place in music too, um, anything is on the table. And it's usually like that in PhD work or doctoral work. Basically, whatever topic you're studying, they can ask you a question about that topic from whatever. I mean, everything's open. So it's hard to know everything about any given topic, right? And so, especially when you've got thousands of years of music and history and all that kind of stuff. So I'd studied really hard. I talked to the professors who had made up the exams. I had a specific... Uh, lead professor for my oral exam. Um, he had already given me some of the questions or directions that he was going to lead the oral exam. He sets the tone. He kind of leads you and says, here's what I'd like us to focus on. Make sure you're up to date on this, blah, blah, blah. Um, I took the written exams one week and then the oral exam is the next week. And you've got to pass your written before you can do your oral. And so, honestly, I killed it on the riddens. I mean, just, I did really well. And I'd, I'm a decent student. I'm pretty good. Uh, I was a decent student. Uh, and I went into my oral exam feeling academically invincible. You know, kind of like, I can, I've got this. I, I've got this nailed. So um, the day, yeah, you see where this is leading, right, already. You already know. Anytime you think you're invincible. Because... The day before my oral exam, and oral exams, the potential for disaster is unlimited uh, because the people asking the questions can just think of something on the spur of the moment, and you may or may not know it. Anyway, my lead professor, Dr. Bass, who was a friend and had kind of mentored me, the day before my oral exam, his daughter, who was in college, was in a bad car accident in another city. So that night, he flew out. 
to go to her bedside, he and his wife, which is the right thing to do versus staying for my oral exam. So he went to be with their daughter. So they substituted another lead professor into my oral exam, the worst possible choice for me. A, a guy who didn't, we were not close, let's just say. We were not close friends. And uh, I went into the oral exam, still feeling good, but you know now a little shakier and it was a disaster. I mean, it was a train wreck. I mean, you could not, it could not have gone worse. It was like I'd never studied music in my entire life. Uh, it was like the questions this guy was asking me, it got to a point, and you know, he, he found an area I didn't know, and then rather saying, oh, obviously he doesn't know about Wagnerian opera, which was the area he went for, uh, and I didn't. I wasn't really up on my Wagner operas at the time. Um, and he just kept going after it. He just kept asking me, one, he gave me another Wagner opera, he asked me another question, another question, another question. To the point, I got to a point where I said, Dr. So-and-so, you can keep asking me these questions and my answer is gonna be the same. I didn't know it five minutes ago, I don't think I know it yet, and I probably won't know it five minutes from now. Obviously, the exam did not go very well. The tensions were really high. Now, what happened was they couldn't fail me because I had done so well on the written exams. But what they did was they asked me to come back. They said, you know, we think you should take this exam again, the oral exam with Dr. Bass is here. So we want you to take it again in, I think it was two or three months, whatever it was. <clears throat> Have you ever had those moments in your life where you felt invincible and then your invincibility is shattered? for some reason. Another way of looking at this is um, pride goes before a fall. I mean, truthfully, invincibility is just another word for pride. To say, I, I, I am proud of who I am. I find my identity in this. I, I believe in this, and I believe in it in me to the point I don't think I can be shaken. And again, it's time to be careful. We're going to see what God says about pride this morning. Oh, I'm going to feed forward. He's against it. Um, he, he's not for it. So we'll see that as we go along this morning, looking at some unusual passages, as most are in Ezekiel. Another unusual passage in Ezekiel. Reminder, Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon. He has been carried off into captivity. He's about 700 miles from Jerusalem. He's by a river called the Kabar River canal and he's about 200 miles from the capital he and Daniel are contemporaries Daniel is in the capital in the court of Nebuchadnezzar doing really good um, Ezekiel is more or less in a refugee camp um, on this river and God appears to him and starts giving him words that he prophesies and most of the words that uh, Ezekiel has received up until this point are all of what's taking place God is saying to him is because of me. The destruction, the judgment, I am bringing that on the nation of Israel because of their continued disobedience, their idolatry, their sexual immorality. I've given them chance after chance and they've never repented. Therefore, I'm destroying them. I've carried you off into captivity. You're here at my command. Um, the whole nation is going to be uh, destroyed. The temple is going to come down. We've already seen that. And it's going to happen so that they, 
the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord. Again, we want most of the time to see and to know that God is good, and that way we know he's the Lord. But there are times when God brings a shaking in our lives so that we'll know that he is the Lord. God is in total control. God sees us. God saw Ezekiel in this um, situation and gives him his word, tells him what's coming. So here's what happens. Um, we've seen up through chapter, I think we finished chapter 18. Let me summarize for you going ahead, and then I want to get to chapter 28. So chapters 29 through 24, 25, 24, um, God continues to say, I'm going to destroy Israel in very picturesque, very allegorical language. He basically says, the sword of my justice has been unsheathed and it's now coming on Jerusalem. He's basically saying, even as I'm prophesying this to you, Ezekiel, Jerusalem is coming down right now. And it is. It's under siege. Uh, They've continued to rebel. Nebuchadnezzar kept putting like a puppet king in. And then the puppet king forgets he's a puppet and starts trying to actually be a real king and not doing what Nebuchadnezzar says. And so Nebuchadnezzar's had it. And he's just going to destroy Jerusalem. So they're already under siege. The nation is being destroyed. Ezekiel gets the word. Um, the nation is it's, it's coming down. Now, also in this passage, in one of the saddest passages, I think, of the entire book, I think it's in the second half of 24, um, maybe 25, I don't have it in front of me, but in one of those, 24 or 25, second half, Ezekiel gets a word, and it says to him, basically at the night, he says, tomorrow is going to be a really bad day for you. And I want you to not mourn. I want you to not weep. I don't want you to cover your head. I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to go on like nothing happened. Next morning, Ezekiel gets up. He tells the elders, hey, I got this word from God. Not sure what it means. That night, Ezekiel's wife dies. And he does exactly what God tells him. Now, we don't know if she was sick, if it was sudden. It's not clear in God's word, but she dies that evening. So Ezekiel has to obey the Lord, and go forward as if God is still in control, not mourning. And God tells him, this is what I want you to act like when Jerusalem comes down. This is the way I'm going to act because Jerusalem, my most precious thing, is going to be destroyed. He continues these words against the nation of, the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. Then, as if, and the question isn't there, but it's almost like you can see the nation of Israel thinking this. And I would have probably thought the same thing. Because we've spent 25 chapters where God is just blasting us and telling me he's going to destroy us. You are my people. I gave you every chance. Now I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to use the pagan nations of the earth to destroy you. I'm going to take you out. And if I were there, I'd say, well, what good is it to be an Israelite then? If all these other pagan nations around us are prospering, why, why, what, what benefit is it to me to be a person of God, to be the people of God? And it's almost as if God says, starting again in chapter, I think, 25, maybe 26, but in this section, he starts saying, 
hey, I'm going to take care of them. And then he starts naming off the nations. He starts saying, I'm going to take out Edom and Moab and uh, Egypt and Sidon. And I can't even remember all that. He just goes down one by one. You've done this, I'm taking you out. You've done this, I'm taking you out. All the, all the pagan nations around, he starts prophesying against. And that God's wrath is being turned against them because they are also sinful. Now, let me say this. I made a big deal at the first that a lot of Ezekiel's prophecies are toward the nation of Israel as the people of God. And, I, I, and as a result, his judgment was turned against them. I, I made a pretty big deal out of saying, look, the United States is not the people of God. We're, we're a nation, but we're not God's people. The church is God's people, not the nation. And saying the words that he's given to Israel about the way they should have acted really apply to the church more than they do the nation. But God's judgment and wrath against pagan nations even is still there. He's saying, I'm still going to judge these nations for their disobedience. So I'm saying that. Don't think America can slip by just because we say we're not the people of God. And I think we're going to see that in just a minute. He gets to a prophetic word which covers two and a half, almost three chapters of Ezekiel. There are two nations that he's going to prophesy against for a long time. One is Egypt, which comes after this passage, but one right here in the middle of this two and a half or three chapter passage is the city-state of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. So beginning in chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, I want to walk us through because I think it's very applicable what he says to Tyre and who we are. So here we go, Ezekiel 28, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasures. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. The city of Tyre was, uh, it's in modern-day Lebanon, so it's north of Israel. And it was, a, it was an island that sat about a half mile off the coast of the mainland. And it had a long and rich history. It was established somewhere in 2500 B.C., so it had been around a long time. Um, it was known for its, uh, it was one of the first places where they dyed purple. They found these mollusks or shells that they, if they crushed them, they could make purple out of them. It became very, very wealthy. They were part of the Phoenician Empire, meaning they sailed the seas and traded. And uh, because it was an island, it was considered impenetrable. You couldn't conquer it. There's no way in this period of time to get to the island. Besides, they had ships. They were known as a sailing people. Uh, in Greek mythology, Zeus uh, kidnaps 
A princess from Tyre by the name of Europa takes her to Crete, and she becomes the, the father of Minos. You probably don't care about Greek mythology, but the continent of Europe is named after a princess of Tyre. This little tiny island became wealthy beyond measure. As a matter of fact, for a long time, the Mediterranean Sea was called the Tyrian Sea. That's how influential Tyre was. Very significant place. Uh, just a quick trivia question. Uh, anybody know probably the most famous um, person to come from Tyre? Besides the king of Tyre, don't say king of Tyre. That's pretty obvious. Anyone? She was a princess of Tyre, married King Ahab. Jezebel was a princess of Tyre. Not, not really the good, uh, you know, reputation you want from, um, from Tyre. But look what, look what he says about the king as he's prophesying on, about him. He says, you're proud. He's going to come back to, he's going to say you're proud twice. You're proud you claim to be divine. You're saying, I am a God. You claim to have divine authority. Because you're divine, you think everything you say goes. You claim to have divine intelligence. By the way, this is a great passage because it compares the king of Tyre and says, do you think you're wiser than who? Daniel. Uh, Daniel, Ezekiel's a couple of hundred miles from Daniel, and yet he knows of what's going on with, with Daniel. I mean, they're contemporaries, uh, and, but he knows of Daniel and his wisdom and what is taking place in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, your wealth has made you proud. Now, I think the, the comparisons to us as a people in this nation, to me, seem a little too obvious to even spend a lot of time. Uh, we think we're gods in our own sight. We, we say we can be whatever we want. We have the authority to claim we can be who we want. We claim to have divine intelligence, that we are smart enough to do whatever we want. We, we, we are the wealthiest nation that has ever existed. And much of this, especially our wealth, has made us proud. Look at what God says to the nation of Tyre. He proclaims judgment on them in verses 6 through 10. Therefore... This is what the sovereign Lord says, because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? Will you be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Not a lot of good here in this judgment of the city of Tyre, this unconquerable city. And God is saying to them, if you think you're a God, just wait. I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to bring you to death. I'm going to conquer your city. I'm going to destroy it. And he says, I'm going to do it at the hands of foreigners. So Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. 
He comes to Tyre, demands that they surrender, they refuse, and he starts a 13-year siege against Tyre. Now, he's never able to conquer Tyre because, again, it's about a half mile off the coast and they still have enough ships, but he, he, he so destroys the economy of Tyre that they pay ransom for Nebuchadnezzar to leave. And as a matter of fact, the records in Babylon indicate that the king of Tyre went back to Babylon and that Nebuchadnezzar was able to install another puppet king in Tyre, even though he wasn't able to conquer it. Fifty years later, Cyrus the Great, a Persian, conquers the nation of Babylon, and he is able to conquer Tyre, though he doesn't destroy it. 200 years after that, Alexander the Great comes to Tyre, and they've been rebuilt and strengthened again, and he is greatly um, offended at their attitude toward him. And so he and his people decide to build a land bridge from the mainland a half mile into the ocean, which he does over a seventh-month period of time. Alexander and his army crosses the land bridge and annihilates Tyre. As a matter of fact, today, if you go to Tyre, that land bridge that Alexander built collected sediment over these several thousand years so that Tyre is no longer an island. It's like an isthmus on the part uh, western coast of Lebanon. It's just another city, no longer the kingdom that it once was. In other words, when God says, I'm going to bring foreigners to destroy you, he doesn't just bring three random foreigners. He brings three of the greatest generals of all time, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus the Great, and Alexander the Great, to totally and eventually annihilate Tyre. You can take God at his word. Then, in a very unusual passage, beginning in chapter uh, 28, verse 11 and following, and this is where I wanted to get to today. Yes, all of that was intro. Um, starting in verse 11, there is a lament for the city of Tyre that I think you'll find interesting. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle 
of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Now, I don't know about your first, but my first response when you read this, wait a minute. Is he still talking about the king of Tyre here? Or is he talking about something or someone else in this discussion? It's pretty picturesque language. And I just want to tell you, there is an incredible debate among biblical scholars about who he's talking about now. Because the passage rings like one from Isaiah that talks about the fall of Satan. And so the debate is this. Is he talking about the king of Tyre? Or is he talking about Satan and his fall from heaven? Or is he talking about Adam, the first man, and his position in the Garden of Eden? I mean, look at the things he says about the king of Tyre. You're the model of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, adorned in precious stones, anointed as a guardian cherub or angel, present on the holy mount of God. You walked among fiery stones. You're blameless, but then became wicked. You were driven from the mount of God. You were proud of your beauty. You corrupted wisdom. You're thrown to earth and you're eventually destroyed. Now, here's what I would say. This is just my view on this. I would say the answer is probably yes <laughs> to your question of who he's talking about here. Because in typical prophetic language, there are tears to the way. It, it could be talking about the present, the person here. It could be talking about the past. It could be talking about the historic past. It could even be talking about the future. And all at the same time, so yes, I think he's, believe he's talking about the king of Tyre, but I also think he's talking about Adam and possibly even Satan because the sin that brought all of them down was exactly the same, and that is the sin of pride. What brought Satan down was his desire to be like God. What brought Adam to sin was Satan's temptation of Adam who said, you could be like God. But what brought the king of Tyre down was his claim that he was divine. In other words, pride is at the core of almost all sin. It is corrupted us. It has brought its hooks in us. We are born into sin and this desire to be gods in our own sight and our desire to rule and reign and to make all the rules. Now, as I said, pride is not a good thing. Biblically, you see it over and over again. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. When we say pride goes before a fall, we, 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 it's saying we have even now. Here's one. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know about you, but I know which side of this equation I want to be on. I don't want to be on the opposing God side. 
I want to be on the humble side. And so one of my prayers is, um, God, keep me humble without humiliating me, right? Uh, because I've been in that position, back to my doctoral exams. I've been in that position where I've been broken, and it took a humiliation for that to occur. And it's better for us to say, God, keep me humble without humiliating me, because God will oppose the proud. First John says this, for all that is in the world, look what he lists, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The things that bring us down, particularly pride, which I think leads to almost every other sin. As I said, I think there's a basis to this. There are other scholars, biblical scholars and philosophers who've talked about the danger of pride and how it leads us into other sins. Even Paul. Remember Paul has this incredible vision, right? An unbelievable vision that God says you can't tell nobody. Now, again, that's the worst thing for any preacher, prophet, writer, I'm going to show you the greatest thing ever, but you can't tell anyone. Wait, wait, I could make a great sermon out of this. Nope, can't tell anyone. And, and so in all of this, Paul says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment, torment me and keep me from becoming proud. The thorn in the flesh that Paul received, whatever it was, we can speculate a lot, was given to him to keep him from what? Becoming pr proud. Do you know God is, is more concerned about keeping us humble and developing our character than almost anything? To the point he will break us against the stone of our own pride. I want to throw this out there to you and to me and to all of us. We have a pride problem. If you think that you're saying, ah, I don't have a pride problem, you have a pride problem with your pride. <laughs> if you think you don't have a pride problem. Because we all have it. It's sewn into the very fabric of the sin nature. Now, we're being recreated in the image of God, but it is something even Paul, God had to help him not become proud. What are we proud of? What are we proud of? I just listed some things. Just want to throw them out there. Here's what I want to say going into this. Please do not hear me making any political statement uh, about anything. <laughs> I just wanted to encourage you to examine where you are today. Now, let me also say this. Pride is a funny word because we use it in a kind of innocuous sense. Like I, I would say to my daughter Olivia, hey, sweetheart, I, good job, I'm proud of you. Now that's an encouragement. That doesn't mean it is the nature of my heart. So we don't have different words for like, hey, good job, I'm proud of you, versus pride. What I'm talking about is that level of pride where we find identity, where we hold on to things, where we claim them to be our own, where we won't let anybody tell us any different. So what are some of the things that cause us pride? One is, I think, nationalism. Nationalism. 
I'm proud to be an American I mean, we get, we get this nationalistic sense of... And again, I think there's a level you can say, I'm proud to be an American. I, I am. But there's another level where you say, I'm proud to be an American. This is my identity. We are the greatest nation on earth, which in a sense says what? If we're the greatest, we're numero uno, we're number one. That means everybody else below us. There's a tier, there's a ranking that says our nation is greater. I'm part of the greatest nation. And again, you could hear me saying, oh my gosh, he's turning into anti-American. It's not that. I'm trying to say, listen, if you find pride to the point of total identity in your nationalism, we're missing something here in the kingdom of God. I'll go on. I'm going to stay here long. I could. Um, but I'm going to preach a whole series on um, God and country coming up in September, uh, leading into the election. And then I'll offend really everybody. Uh, <clears throat> one other thing we find pride in <laughs> is, is wealth. Is wealth. We find pride in our money. We are the richest. We're the greatest because we're the richest. I have identity in my, in my, in my wealth. We find, we find it in our own strength. Look, I don't, I mean, I don't need anybody else. I can do this myself. I don't need, I don't need the community. I don't need other people. I'm not going to tell other people what's going on in my life because I can handle it myself. No, you can't. No, you can't. And God will eventually break that off of you. At some point to say, I, I need somebody. And the, again, the problem is what it takes for you to get there may be so devastating. Instead, why not embrace the community and say, I am not strong enough. I am not rich enough. I am not smart enough. I am so, I mean, think about these things that, that I'm listing right now. Nationalism, wealth, strength, education. Are they not the things upon which we build our entire lives? Race can become an issue of pride. I mean, white nationalism, what does that mean? Because I'm proud to be white. Our identity has to be in Christ. Everything else is secondary. When I say everything, I mean everything. We're going to have some more discussions about race coming up. It's not something to be blind to, but at the same time, there's a difference between identifying, recognizing, relating, loving, versus this is totally who I am. Religion can be a thing to be proud about. <laughs> you may say, well, wait a minute, Bart. You know, we're Christians. We can be proud to be Christians. Yeah, you could be. But it's not that you're a Christian that makes you proud. What makes you who you are is your identity in Christ. That gummit the Pharisees knew everything about everything. I mean, their total pride was in their religion. And who do you see Jesus talking against the most? The Pharisees. 
Their religious pride drove them into a corner where they could no longer love people well. They didn't even care about people. All they cared about was their religion. I mean, I know there's a sermon on every one of these. Um, I'm just trying to list some for us to help. Sexual orientation can become a point of pride. I mean, it's, I understand the term gay pride, trying to identify in that way. But at the same time, there is, this is who I am. I am this. And I want to say, no, you're not. No, you're not. I mean, I understand the moniker that says, I am a heterosexual, white, 61-year-old, male American who has a doctorate. I understand that those are adjectives that might define me, but those things are not who I am. Do you understand the difference? I hope you do. Um, Family. Some people become so proud in their families that that's all they can do or talk about. It's who they find their identity. My identity becomes in raising my kids to become this. And then everything I talk about, it's the level my kids have become. I'm, honestly, I'm guilty of this. I'm very proud of my kids. But I'm trying not to find my identity in them. Here's a weird one. I could go on, by the way, I could go on all day with this list. I'm just trying to throw some things out there that to spur your mind and say, God, show me the pride of my heart that needs to be removed so that I can walk in humility before you. There are some people who actually find pride in their level of hurt or brokenness. You're like, what? Yeah, they're so identified with, this is what happened to me. This is my brokenness. This is my addiction. This is my that. They actually find a sense of pride and identity, and they can't even let the hurt and brokenness go because if they did, who would I be anymore? If, I, if I'm not this broken creature, then, then who, I, who am I? I'll tell you who you are, by the way. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation in him. Let go of that and receive who you are in him. All of these to say, And again, this is not a comprehensive list, just a list for us to be thinking about what are the things that cause us pride, which in turn, and here's the danger of pride, it hinders our relationship with God and it harms our relationship with one another. The thing that we're supposed to be doing is loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor, loving the people around us as ourselves. The thing pride does, it makes you here and the universe going around you. And if someone interferes with the universe circling around you because you're proud of where you are, you'll cut them out. You'll put them down. You'll badmouth them. If, even if God, eh, no, I'm not going there. I mean, God still loves me. He's got to forgive me. You know, it says so in the Bible that he's got to forgive me, so I'm going to just continue on. If God is opposing the proud, then it may not keep you out of heaven. I'm not going to get into the... But what it will do is harm God's purpose and destiny for you in your life now. We live in an age where the words of the prophet Isaiah have come to pass. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Why, why do we reach that place where we can call whatever we want, whatever we want? Because we are divine, right? We see ourselves as gods, like the king of Tyre. We've reached a place when our wealth and education and I am a perfect whatever I am. That's what my eighth grade algebra teacher told me. Tried to instill in us that, um, I, I don't know if it's from a Buddhist kind of mindset, uh, but that, look, whatever you are, you're perfect as that. You are a perfect whatever you are. That's the divine claim of each and every person. And we live in an age where, um, you know, you, you can't say anything that might challenge somebody else's anything. I'll give you one example, then I'm going to close with two points that I'm not even going to elaborate on that I think are the two points that God would have us see today. It's very interesting to me, over the past two weeks, um, J.K. Rowling is the author of the Harry Potter series. Uh, J.K. Rowling is a very liberal author. Uh, she's been hailed because some of her characters in the fictional series of Harry Potter um, she intended to, to, to be gay. So she's even talked about how um, Dumbledore, who's one of the lead characters, was a gay, in her mind was gay, even though she doesn't bring it out um, in, in the book. So she's been hailed for her, and she's very politically active in a, uh, a leftist um, kind of way. A couple of weeks ago, she was talking about a topic, and I'm not even going to quote her tweets because it's not important, it is important, but it's kind of hard to talk about, but basically what happened was she said, it's fine with me if you want to say sexually, because of who you are, I am a man or I'm a woman, but that doesn't change the biological fact that you were born either a man or a woman. Do you understand? So she was saying to the transgender community basically, hey, if you want to claim to be a man, that's fine. Or you claim to be a woman, that's fine. You want to be called a man or a woman. But it doesn't change the biological fact you're either a man or a woman. And she related it to women's cycles. That's why I'm not reading you the whole quote. Um, and, oh, you would have thought, I mean, the outpouring of vitriol toward her and the cutting off, she's been called uh, transphobic. Transphobic, meaning fear of trans people, when she's trying to make a point. And that is the culture I believe we live in now, where even you can't go far enough left. You can't go far enough if you go to any spot and say, eh, this is as far as I'm going comfortably. Then the people on down the road will start screaming, you're a phobic person and will cancel you. Why? Because... That road says everyone is a god in their own sight. We have the ability. I have the ability to say, claim the divine and claim that everything I believe in, everything I am is right. And how dare you, how dare you claim anything any different? I believe the message of Ezekiel is clear. God will bring down pride. 
Whatever the pride of your heart. Now, let me just also say, don't, don't go to the place, Christians, where you find pride in condemning those who are struggling and dealing with different issues. You know, like, we're going to cut them off. We're going to... It never does anybody any good for you to stand on a street corner saying God hates homosexuals. I don't know anybody who's repented and said, you know, God must. I'm going to come to him uh, as a result of that sign uh, because, wow, he must hate me or hate. No, that is not the message of Christ. It is a message of love and grace. Maybe you should stand on the street corner saying God hates pride. And see how many people will stop and repent right then. The problem is we don't see it. We're blind to it. But God sees it and he will bring it down. And the other point is this that I think Ezekiel is trying to make. Is God is God of all nations. All nations. God is in control. He is working his purpose. He is working his plan in a historical context toward a completion. We believe that God is the God of America. But I would say this. Yeah, he is. But you know what? He's also the God of North Korea. And he's also the God of China. He's also the God of Ethiopia. God is the God of all nations. And even though we may not see it, he is working his plans and his purposes. Even maybe, maybe to get us to a place of good and right relationship with him and with each other. Here's my thought this morning in prayer is that God would help us identify the areas of pride in our own hearts and lives. Because again, we've all got them. We've all got them. Lord, this morning I pray that you would lead us and guide us and direct us and you would bring us to a place where we identify and repent of the pride of our hearts. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much that you were more concerned about our character to the point that you'll break our pride, that you want us to be humble before you and before one another. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. Move among us. Move among the nations. May your purposes and glory be seen in all places. In Jesus' name, amen.